Okay. Um, hey everyone, welcome to Faded Mates. This week we'll be talking about Regan the Radiant. You're going ri- Regan the Radiant. So I'm like, okay, fast. I'll slow down. I'm so excited. Ah! Slow down. <laughs> you guys were rolling. Oh my excited. God. I didn't think I'd be excited about this one, but this week on Faded Mates, we're going to be discussing Dreams of a Dark Warrior. I remembered from memory. I'm so impressed because I can't, I literally, every time I'm trying to reference it anywhere now, I'm just wrong. Something interesting happens in my brain where I'm like, Regan, Declan, dreams of a dark warrior. There's like a, a pause. So we are going to be talking about Regan and her thousand year old reincarnated berserker. <sighs> Berserkers. Torture Island. Lots and lots of Torture Island and tor- heavy on the torture this time. Yeah. Content warning. Torture Island. Yeah, right. I That's mean, really... It's funny because I think everybody's like, what is Torture Island? They keep saying Torture Island. And we saw it last book. But like this book is yeah. the Torture Island book. Yes, absolutely. It entirely takes place on Torture Island, right? There's not even really an escape from it. at the. I mean... No? There, like a chapter. At I mean, the end. yeah, at the end, just to say, like, and they got off Torture Island. Right, right. And I think also this is a book that, um, you know, we talk about the second movement and what's it, what it's doing, and this shows a lot of development of secondary subplots, some of which are going to be very important for movement three, and some which are very important for the wrap up of movement two. I was real impressed by the level of prep for movement three that is happening here. I highlighted as I was reading so many moments where I was like, this is sweet ruin. This is wicked abyss already established. I mean, I do not. I I mean, this is bananas, Cressley. How are you holding yeah. 83 books in your head? <laughs> I'm back to wanting a picture of her murder wall. Yes, same. Because clearly it exists, well, or her brain is we'll like ready for, for science. Her brain will be taken to Torture Island and inspected by people there because it's got to be like the level of detail. And that's the thing. Last week we were talking, I think, or on Demon from the Dark, and you said, I think she's just sort of plotted through Lothair. And then you read this and you're like, oh, no. No, now she's done. <laughs> like, I, I feel like, I feel like she's plotted through Nyx at this point. And, I mean, we don't have any idea what that means, but... Um, she does. Yeah. Interestingly, I think... I don't know. At this point, we've talked so much about these books that I never know what I've said and not said. But I know for a long time, or at some point during 2011, uh, Cressley said publicly, or maybe it wasn't 2011, maybe it was earlier, but she said on some message board somewhere that Nick's and... That um, Fury and Kristoff were going to be connected. Mm-hmm. I think... Anything that she said before Torture Island needs to be just, like, wiped clean off the slate because I feel like suddenly Torture Island expands the whole universe to such an a immense degree that anything that she thought she might have prepared for earlier than that um, mm-hmm. just can't possibly be valid in the scope of the world now. Well, and one of the things that I was really struck by as a reader is as a general, like, statement – I think it's very hard, and I don't mean this to sound as judgment. I don't mean it to sound judgmental. I, I mean to sound admiring. When authors make a bigger world, it, it can be very difficult to keep 
characters in check to keep like like sort of keep all those balls juggling in the air right like it's really like watching a juggler at work to use a Salman Rushdie um analogy from a book called Harun and the Stories right storytelling is like juggling Mm -hmm. and I think what happens is in this book there's so many like other things being woven in but I never felt like it detracted from Regan and Declan I felt like it helped build it up yeah and I think that is a tremendous accomplishment because I think it's really hard to then have like a chapter that's away from them or you know, whatever, and still feel like the narrative thrust is moving forward that you haven't just like put the car in neutral. And I think that's something really astounding about this book. There are entire subplots that are just so delicately woven through, mm-hmm. like little strands of gold. And it's just pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, okay. I want to just quickly, in a couple of sentences, talk about where we are. So, in Dreams of a Dark Warrior, no, false. That's what this is. Yes. Last book was Demon, from, Demon the from the Dark. So in Demon from the Dark, we saw Malcolm and Caro on this other plane doing their own sort of essentially what was a snowed in romance, but like over in, in an other world. <laughs> in hell. <clears throat> right? Snowed in in hell. But while that was all happening, concurrent to all of that in, in IAD time, Torture Island is happening. So at the end of the Malcolm and Carol book, we see Torture Island, like, or not the end. It's sort of two-thirds of the way through, maybe, that book. Mm-hmm. We see Torture Island's demise. We see Carol and Malcolm escape. And then we see them have what I have referred to as a marriage and trouble book by the end, mm-hmm. right? Yep. What we're seeing in this book, Dreams of a Dark Warrior, <laughs> is what was happening while Caro and Malcolm were away. Um, and we really, in the last book, didn't get quite so much of what really, the sort of horrors of Torture Island. What is really, really happening to these characters. This book feels, there were a couple of really moments that made me flinch hard in this. Because they felt, it felt gruesome. In a way that we've never seen, we've seen other heroes and heroines tortured over the course of the series. We've never seen anything like this. Okay, so where where do we want to start? What do we want to talk about? Because I have a lot to say. I want. I, I also want to say, and this I have never reread this book. It's one of the ones I skip. I skip it because Declan Chase, in my mind is not the Declan Chase who I read again on this reread. I completely agree. I mean, in my mind, I was kind of like, that just happened. <laughs> but I skip over it. And and one of the things we should also say is at the end of this podcast, we have a special guest with us, Sarah Hawley, one of the Wicked Wallflowers, because this is one of her, this is her favorite IAD book. And that's just not a real common thing. No, poor Sarah, and, though. She's <laughs> Now she's sort of pointed to on the internet as like, well, she's the one who likes Declan you know Chase. What? I will now join her in that, I'm right? Sort of like team I Je- team Declan after this reread. I, yeah, I, I think it's troublesome. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but you a know whole what? Lot I happening. think I think for me, at its core, it's really about how radical it is truly to promise to love someone for better or worse. What? How? How or worse do we really mean? 
And I think that it, once I kind of turned that like lens on, Mm-hmm. It, but you know, it just made like my reading of it. Like I felt it was a really powerful story, and I, I really, um, I think there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about. So I, we're obviously going to talk about Declan, but I think we're going to focus on Declan more when we have Sarah on with us. Yeah, and so I think we have tons of other things that we're going to talk about. But um, I think it might be interesting to maybe start with Regan. So I think there's something really interesting happening in this book, which is Cressley is – this is a really different book structurally than any yes. of the other books that she's written. And it's structurally yes. different for a lot of reasons. One, there are a ton more characters than usual mm-hmm. and a ton more characters who – I mean, all – obviously, every time one of these books happens, um, we see characters from all over the lore kind of pop in and out. But – Usually there's like the heroine and like one one close friend and then a bunch of sort of secondary or tertiary characters. Or there's a hero and his brother, or a hero and his cousin, right? In this particular case, what you have is all these people on an island together and each one of them, what Cressley's done is she's figured out a way to move it's it's chess. It's setting us up for Lothair. This whole book is setting us up for mm-hmm. Lothair. Um, and it is, I think, a, a game of chess that's happening here where there are so many different characters who are all essential to the story, even in their minor roles, right? Absolutely. And then there comes this point where it's really like a team movie. I, I say all the time that I really love in movies and TV shows when um, a large group of people working together, all wearing sunglasses, do a slow walk out of a building, yes. like a heist. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and this really does feel a little heisty with, like, at the end, this kind of collection of a Molly crew of characters working It's together. like Reservoir Dogs to me, right? Like they all walk out and there's this like soundtrack playing. But I want you to talk about the fact that last week we were like, there's never an epilogue. The whole like fairy tale structure set up, I mm-hmm. thought was really interesting too. Yeah. Um, the fact, and it's, you know, the fact that it sort of told like a tale, Right. And that there's then this like epilogue, like a mm-hmm. fairy tale, I just thought was really interesting. Well, these fairy tales, then we move, when we move forward, we start to see Nyx is telling these stories. And you start to kind of wonder, like, has Nyx been telling, is Nyx our narrator through all of this? Yeah. Right. Right. Which is really a mind fuck when you think about like suddenly you're like, oh, wait, there's a whole new structure at play here. And mm-hmm. then on top of it, I mean, there are lots of craft things that I'm sure we'll get into. But on top of all this, this is the first of the books where it's really not the heroine's story at all. And I think it also is in a way that's really unexpected, which is like, well, OK, so. I guess what I mean by that is there's this really fascinating thing about, like, Aiden. Like, who is Aiden, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is Aiden Declan or is Declan Aiden, right? This sort of push-pull. And she kind of blows into that thinking, I'm just me. 
Mm-hmm. And her experience on Torture Island makes her question that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not just Declan sort of being stronger than Aiden. I think it's that Regan changes too that allows them to like beat this. Sure. And I think that's a really interesting part. Like, right, we talk about like dynamic characters changing. And she does change, but it's like him through something terrible happening to her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think also there's this piece, right, where Declan is – so he's a reincarnate. Um, he's the first we've seen of this world. Um, and he's come back – I think this is the fifth time. Maybe the sixth yes. time. Fifth. The fifth time. And mm-hmm. she – Regan has every time – you get this sort of very real sense that every time he's – she he's come back he's returned she's stagnant right she hasn't she's definitely older and more powerful and she's you know the valkyries have all the valkyrie stuff has happened and she's certainly nothing to sneeze at but every time they return to this push pull of faded mates that's or this curse, whatever it is mm-hmm. that's happened to them, and it's never a hundred percent clear what has happened to them. Um, I think this is just one of those really interesting moments where, like, we talk as romance readers about um, how certain things like don't get wrapped up in the world building because nobody really cares, and this is a good example of like Cressley didn't get wrapped up in the world building of what it, what actually happened to well, Declan and, and Regan. The- yeah, and the characters even address it. She, like, Regan says something like, you, we can't even fully understand the lore ourselves. And there it like, is. Some, <laughs> right? I fine. mean, it's fine. Right? So as, yeah. that's sort of a nice writerly lesson. Like, don't worry so much about it. Like, as long as the readers are in the story, it doesn't 100% matter all the time. Um, but what I was, what I wanted to say about that is that um, for the last four incarnations of Aiden, I think Regan has been the kind of young girl in love that she was a young girl kind of playing at love even in those earlier things, right? It's been a game. And this time... refusing to let herself really love, right? Like, it's also willful. Sure. Like, she doesn't... I I think she has been sort of toying with herself and him in all these other incarnations like she tells the story about how when they met in medieval france you know she was on a rampart and he was you know attacking the castle that she was defending and like they had this great banter and then they just tumbled into bed together right right And, and in this particular case it's not easy, right? Declan's not easy. So, of course, this love is going to evolve for her in a very different way. And at some point late in the book, she says, like, I don't – I didn't love him. I didn't love – Yeah. And she, what's interesting is she tells him that before she's come to a place where she has forgiven Chase and loves him. But she's realizing that, like, that sort of childhood infatuation is not the same as earned love right well and i think a really heartbreaking moment in this book for me is the first time aiden dies and she's so he's like your i still don't have your heart like he knows it and it's the power of that unrequited love i think that really powers kind of whatever happens next yeah, like it's this what brings him back yeah, like their story's never going to be finished until that gets fixed, right? Like that pattern is doomed on repeat, not because 
they're they're cursed but because they don't commit yeah yeah or she doesn't maybe well maybe both of them right because there's I I don't know, because I think that Declan also realized there's revelation for him. This really, for me, was a book. And I mean, this is not, I mean, congratulations, Sarah, you read a book (laughs) and saw the plot. (laughs) But I mean, this is Declan's revelation, the whole book. It's so medieval, this kind of sense of he's learning all the love languages. Like, he has to learn how to love Regan. He has to learn how to love Brander, his Mm -hmm. second-in-command, who is so deeply loyal to him and remarkable. What a great character. Yeah, I know. I want him back, right? Well, he has to learn to love himself. Yeah. I mean, of course, right? But he also, like, has to learn how to trust people in general like the fact that he has to learn to trust Lothair I mean the idea that in any one of these books that you have to rely on trusting Lothair is really (laughs) pretty great quite a thing right forcing and what I think Cressley's doing look the hardest thing in the world is writing a villain as a hero I know this yeah because I've done it i'm currently doing it the the last book in the bare knuckle bastard series series is villain as hero the last book um or the second to last book in the wallflower series the um devil in winter is villain as hero um villain as hero is certainly it is its own romance trope but it is really difficult to do because you can't pull your punches when you're writing a villain in order to set him up to be a hero, but ultimately you're going to, he's going to have to atone for every one of his sins. And in this particular case, the challenge for Cressley and for Declan is atonement in, is enough atonement. And in order for him to do that, you have to push him against, to atone, you have to give up your blood to Lothair. To atone, you have to like, be loyal to this band of detris, right? Right. To atone, you have to suffer watching your, you have to relinquish your, well, you have to suffocate your fated mate, right? For her own, for her own benefit. I mean, there are so many moments where he's so punished. Yeah. And I will tell you, I, um, I could have used a little more. <laughs> I know. It's always a it's always a thing. Here's where I struggled. I actually didn't struggle with the acts of atonement part because I I did really see that he did suffer through that. I think a part that I really personally struggled with, and I don't want I mean, I guess we can talk about with this Sarah too, is that like the whole vivisection thing, he doesn't really realize how terrible it is until it happens to Regan. And I felt a little like, it's like a man who understands women's rights are important when they ha- once they have a daughter. <laughs> like, that's what it took. Yeah. And I, I think that's part of the, um, I, I think w- I also needed to see a fuller picture of, like, past regret, maybe. Yeah, what's the name of that church that protests funerals? That terrible Oh, God, those terrible people. Those terrible, horrible people. Yeah, but there was a woman who was raised in that church, and then she escaped. 
And then I saw her, I saw an interview with her on that Sarah Silverman show, I Love You America. And Mm -hmm. she was fascinating because she was like, I just, it never occurred to me that I was, that I was being told the wrong thing. That That I was brainwashed. Exactly. And her interview, we'll put, we'll link it in show notes. Um, Also remember the name. I'm I'm doing very well with memory of things today. But I'm like, I know what it is, but I can't come up with the name. It's fine. We'll point, we'll point it out in show notes, but the, um, but we'll post this interview too, because I think that's where we are with Declan. Like, I think he was so destroyed as a teen. He was 17 when his parents were killed by the Pravis creatures. Yeah. Um, they attacked him and tortured him. He was You're saved right. by Webb, who is basically a genocidal maniac. Right. And Webb told him, you are one of many. They are legion. All immortals are the same. Come and fight them with me. And so you can sort of see how a 17-year-old would say, like, okay, that seems right. Right? This is why I say all the time when I t- when I teach, like, writing that revenge works as a conflict because it's never a good it never resolves its well itself well right like yeah right i do think here's the thing for the lion's share of this book i was like has cressley given us enough of the tor- of declan's torture at the beginning and then lothair drinks him and dreams yeah. his torture and you see right. Lothair, the enemy of old, who ultimately we will know. I mean, maybe the reread of this book is better than the first read of this book because we are we come into it eyes wide open. We're right. going to see what kind of torture Lothair has suffered as in his own existence, and hit the idea that he might dream torture that that scares him, terrifies yeah. him, is pretty magnificent right well i also think it's a really like radical question about like where we place ourselves as a reader versus the characters right like it Mm. doesn't really matter if i don't forgive declan if regan does i don't know is that true i don't know either i'm asking that as a question right like i i don't think it's entirely true because if we didn't trust the characters or the authors, we wouldn't keep reading. Well, I think we'd but never say, like, oh, right? what an unlikable heroine if we trusted the characters Yeah, to it's make like a really choices. interesting question, right? Like, what does it mean to have Regan forgive him even if we're not quite sure? And I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I don't know if there is an answer. <sighs> All right. I'm sure you faced that with Malcolm in Day of the Duchess. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you did, And right? I'm doing it now with Ewan in, in the next book. But I think... I mean, yeah, you spend all your time worrying. Like, are they are they atoning enough? Are they groveling yeah. enough? Is there enough here? Well, let's talk about how I think the biggest way that she gets around um, sort of this this measure of atonement is by using all these extra characters. So let's talk about some of these extra characters and what's okay. happening. Um, because... I think there's Lothair, and obviously we need to do Lothair watch. It feels like we're just moving to a place where we're going to have to talk about Lothair more and more and more until we get to Lothair. Um, And then there's Thad, who we are introduced to long before Thad becomes important to the arc of the story. Because Thad is really the driving force of the third movement of IAD. 
Yeah. Well, I think one way we can, and I think we need to talk about Brander and Natalia. Natalia. Right? And so McCree. I think we need, we have McCree coming in. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a really interesting thing at the end, though, too, which is we were talking about like Carol and Malcolm's book and like the timeline. It's implied at the end of Demon from the Dark that they intend to go back. And they do show up then at the end of this book, right? So then we can sort of place things in order. Mm -hmm. And there's this pretty amazing scene where, like, Malcolm basically stabs Declan, right? And, and, and Regan's like, God damn it. And Carol's like, Ooh, I didn't know you were in love with him. (laughs) And I think, and I, and I found it like this. One of the things I thought was really remarkable about that scene is Carol being able to quickly forgive him. And even a Malcolm to some extent, I think is because they themselves are so like looked down upon, right? So, so like Carol knew all along, people are not going to understand me with this Veman. And so I think she, she being the one to show up and like sort of be like, oh, sorry, showed Regan that like acceptance is going to like actually crawl out of somewhere because there are lots of people now. The accession is bringing people together that have never been together. And that's going to open up like not just new romances between individuals, but like new romances between alliances and groups of people. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't like the Natalia Brander, like we both zigged when we meant to zag or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a lot of really interesting things happening here that are... It's such a different book. It's... Yes. Um, and I kept thinking to myself, it is where Untouchable was... When we talked about Untouchable during the novella episode, we talked... I talked a lot about how I thought, like, craft-wise, what Cressley was doing with Untouchable was really exploring the scope of the world she was writing. Yeah. In this book, I think Cressley is exploring this exploring the scope of the character arcs that she can write, right? She's laying so much thread for the future. It's amazing. Let's talk about Regan at the very beginning and then Thad. Because so um two things. One Talia Hibbert stopped reading this, has never read this book, and she, on Twitter a few weeks ago, tweeted that she stopped reading this book because Regan is 12 uh, during the prologue of this book. Uh, Every friend of mine who's read it has texted me and was like, "Mm, she's 12. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let's just talk this through because she is 12. She has just escaped. So the the Valkyrie mythology says that uh, Valkyries are born of three parents, a dying um, warrior, who a woman, a female warrior, yeah. who is dying in battle, who cries out to Freya and Woden and is immediately mm-hmm. brought up to Valhalla pregnant with a Valkyrie. Um, also, somebody tweeted at us or text or put it in um, Instagram. Well, I'll find the person and asked us a very specific question about this, like about consent and this like Valkyries being like lifted up from battle, but then yeah. turned into vessels for Valkyries, which is interesting. I mean, it's an interesting question. Like it is. And and I just want to say it out loud because when I read it, I texted it to Jen and I was like, oh, this is really an interesting like question of like what is happening right. here because they are becoming sort of vessels of vessels of the gods, but they are also birthing warriors. So it, it's an interesting push pull anyway. 
So, but, and then they get to grow up in Valhalla, which is, mm-hmm. seems like a pretty great place to grow up. But yeah. Lucia, as we know from two books ago, from whatever the hell that book was called. <laughs> Pleasure of a Dark Prince. Thank you I'm very like, much. Oh, Jen's so good at this. Lucia escaped Valhalla to marry Kruak and head out to her, you know, life trauma. And Regan loves her sister. They These two are, they're, they're, they're sisters of blood and also of heart, right? Yeah. So right, Regan absolutely. leaves to find Lucia and help her, but she's 12 and she lands in war. She's, mm-hmm. and she turns up in the like longhouse of Aiden the Fierce, who, and when she meets him, she's 12, but kind yeah. of a badass Valkyrie already. Like ballsy. She's very Regan. He's 30. He's 30. And, and he recognizes essentially that yeah he basically says like I'm we're gonna be mated eventually yeah you're gonna be my wife um, mm-hmm. because I'm gonna become a berserker Woden's gonna give me immortality and when I am immortal you and I are going to be married but it's not gross at least it was a little gross okay I did not it was not gross for me it was not gross for me because. And we talked about this on the Scottish episode, but it really echoed that Julie Garwood book, The Gift, for me, where there's like sort of a an arranged marriage and the hero is much older than the heroine who is like a child in that in that book, four or five years old. And like he's just holding like he's literally like holding her like a toddler on her on his hip. And he's like, mm-hmm. this is like this is for the future and then it ends and then they come back when when they're older and it does in this case the 12 year old you know it it ends and then he comes back or she comes back when she's 20 and then they marry it wasn't gross that's too strong there was one part i was like "Mm," which was uh like a, a a buxom serving maid comes in to bring her a glass of milk which is pretty funny and regan essentially wishes her boobs were bigger yeah like she's 12 and she's kind of like eh well, what what I really want to do is I want to talk about Thad, who's six, 16, just turned 17, like very um, Sound of Music. And then I want to talk about Regan at the end, regretting that she never went back to find Declan as a young man. To protect like younger, him. To right? protect him. To protect him. And I think that's when it closed the loop. The moment where she was looking at the serving girl and she was thinking like, that felt it, it. I mean, like, look, we all come to our, you know, sexual identity, or like we ha- we are awakened sexually at different ages, right? And I think in that particular, I, it really rang true to me that, like, as a prepubescent girl, like as a as a middle schooler, yeah. right? You teach sure. middle school, like you're sort of exploring this idea of like, well, what is sexual? Like, how do I, like, what is it to be attractive? Like, how is that? And none of this is in the text really, but it is just sort of a fleeting moment of like, what if I were beautiful like that? Well, and one of the things I all, I actually have always really respected about this series is that Cressley has never flinched from the idea that teenagers are sexual beings is it Mariketta that had the boyfriend when she was 16 and they just had great sex for a couple of years and, you know. And, sure, sure. She, and, he was and, a werewolf and, or something. 
Right. I mean, and so part of me is like, it's, you know, and Thad it's too. Thad thinks he's going to well, die and fills his backpack with condoms and beer. Condoms. <laughs> I know. But I think actually that's, and, and I'd said this to you in a text this morning, like, I feel like if you read this book and you're really upset about her being 12, and I understand that, and then you make it through the whole book, but you're not just as interest, just as interested in the idea that Thad is 17. He mm-hmm. just turned 17, and these immortal women like are kind of mathing on him. Thousands of years old. Okay, so yes. let's let's jump forward to that because Thad is put in the cell, an, an uncon or like a catatonic Thad. Oh God, yes. Put in a cell with Natalia, who is a dark fae, um, which will become very important again in Act Three of this series. Um, but. So Natalia is a dark fae. Dark fays are poisonous. Um, in this book, they are poisonous only to vampires, by the way, it looks like. Well, they're, she has her torque on. Oh, and so it's okay. kind of it's kind of waved away a little bit. But Lothair says you couldn't you couldn't have been with her because she's poisonous to our kind. But what's interesting, so again, that's gonna be that's going to change. That's going to alter over time. And ultimately she will be poisonous to everyone. But right now she is poisonous. Um, and then there is uh, Regan in there. And Regan is, yeah. you know, Regan. So, and they sort of see it. So he's catatonic. And then he wakes up and he's basically like, I was going on a date with presumably yeah. Chloe. Right? N- no, there are other magisters. Okay, it's not And it Webb's was another daughter. magister. It's okay. not Webb's daughter. It's one of the other magisters. Okay. So he was basically, like, going to go on a date with one of the other magister's daughters, and then he got stuck there, and you as the reader are like, what is happening? And then one of the girls in the, one of the, you know, whatever, either Regan or um, Natalia say, well, it's been more than a week, and you haven't eaten. So yeah, you're definitely not human. Right. And it's this is when Thad discovers, like, oh, I'm a baby something. Yeah. Um, and he, yeah. so what I really love about that is that the moment they sort of discover that he doesn't know what he is, he becomes like the ruby of this book. Like the sort of, they're protecting him. But I mean, yeah, he has a lot of wet dreams. <laughs> it was more uncomfortable for me to see. at some scenes to see how they like sexualized him Mm -hmm. than it was for me to see how Aiden treated her when she was 12. Well, because he doesn't sexualize her when she's 12. Right, at all. But but they do. No, he's basically like, can we get her a glass of milk? Yes. And, (laughs) and, And it's really interesting to me that um I mean they name him Tiger because his penis essentially is so big and he's getting hard ons all the time. Yeah. Now they do think that he's over eighteen. And then they do the moment he says I'm seventeen, there's like a record scratch. <laughs> <laughs> like actually in the text. Yeah, totally. Right. And so I think that but I think what's really interesting about it too is Declan is also seventeen. And I think what I ended up thinking about like them in totality is how kids, whether we like it or not, are sometimes faced with adult horrors yep. and forced to deal with them. Yep. And that could happen at 12, and it could happen at 15 yep. or 16 or 17, and that's just the way of the fuck. Or seven. Yes. Right? For, like, Ruby. And I, and I, I found myself feeling kind of at peace with that as, like, yeah, <laughs> 
That's true. I also think Thad then becomes this sort of talisman. (laughs) It's really interesting because then suddenly all the characters in the lore, once it's, it's like Cressley establishes him as being only 17 and suddenly everyone is like oh god we have to protect him and when i yeah. say everyone i mean literally everyone i mean lothair Even and i lothair. want to talk about lothair watch now because thad yes. and lothair are like the buddy cop movie <laughs> i didn't know i wanted but and yet i, I want it all the I time want, like all i want is like the thad and lothair show forever because yes thad is yes. pure wonderful Texas gentleman and Lothair. It's the cutest thing. <laughs> and Lothair is a fucking monster. <laughs> and they together are like the most darling couple ever. Yes, it's true. It's so cute. Because Thad's always like, Mr. Lothair, can I help you get out of this you know, I'll help you, like, up off this cliff where you've just kicked a one-eyed goddess into oblivion. Can I just, like, everybody right now, I think Lothair is Odysseus. I will talk more about that next week or two weeks from now. <laughs> just be ready. Because I was driving home and was like, oh, shit. That's so real. And then Jen was like, if Lothair ever touches a one-eyed creature, I know uh, I, Game I, over. I have a like, theory. I and it. I was like, um, he just kicked a one-eyed Dorada into a hole. So it's, it's probably so real. much. Anyway, we'll get to Lothair. We'll put a pin in Lothair as Odysseus. But the point is that that is so helpful. And then when they get to the point when they're on the tarmac and the Wendingos are coming, and he's like, I'm going to fight with you, Mr. Lothair. And Lothair is like, get the fuck away from me. I know. And then we start to see, and then Lothair decks him, and he, like, mm-hmm. takes off. And then we start to see Lothair using Lothair speak for the first time with Thad. Because yep. Thad's like, are we buddies now? And and Lothair's like, why would you ask me that question? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of like, course. Of course. He's delightful. Oh, God. He's such a great character. And you know what I would say about Thad, though, too? There's this amazing moment, like probably my favorite moment in any of these books. Although I have also said that I would read fanfic uh, about like all the immortals after dark men in group therapy together. The close. <laughs> That's a Kate Claiborne. <laughs> I know. Shout I was out. Like, Kate I was, was like, like, none of these, all these guys need to fuck it go, out. But none of them go to therapy. <laughs> and I was like, group therapy? <laughs> Here's the thing, though. The closest we get is in this book where these motherfuckers bond over the warm beer out of Thad's backpack. No, it's so funny. It is the best. Has been carrying his backpack (laughs) for like a week, and it's filled with like, and so everybody just Declan thinks he's got food in there. He's like, oh, smart kid, he's got food in there, and then it turns out he's got warm Budweiser, um, condoms, toothpaste. And there's something else. One God, what else was there? I can't remember. Hold on, I'm gonna look. But it's, it's perfection. And then they're like, "Well, I guess we're all just gonna drink this beer with this kid." Yeah, but you know what's the most amazing part about that scene, though? Condoms, cologne, cologne. Condoms. No. I've got, I've got condoms, cologne, toothpaste, essentials. He says. <laughs> you know what's amazing though about this scene is they're all strategizing how they can help Declan win Regan back. Mm-hmm. And it's all these crazy-ass machinations. And Sad's like, well, my gran always says that sometimes men just forget to say, 
I'm sorry. <laughs> and accurate that. He, that that baby has the best advice. Just but listen also, to him. Can we talk about how Lothair is fucking right? With oh, that whole yeah, scene where, where Lothair is like, um, no, you don't go grovel. Yeah. You go into her and you fight. What does he say? Live by the sword, love by the sword. My God, I want it's that amazing. as a tattoo. Like that's it. Yeah. I was like, well, I don't have a tattoo because I never know what to, what it should be. It's that. It's live by the sword, love by the sword. And so all the Odysseus tattoos, all the Ulysses tattoos. That violent scene between them. Yeah. Where he goes for her and he just lets her wail on him in the by the water is really a wonderful scene. And it's so oh, one yeah. of I know this is a controversial film for a lot of people, but I love the movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith with um Brad oh, Pitt yeah, and too. Angelina Jolie. Cause I love it when two incredibly strong characters they beat the shit out of each beat other. The shit out of each other. And I also cause yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, there's no kink shaming here. Sometimes I think that's super hot. Like, I want it. It was super hot. Right? Only if they're even. Right? Like, Right. And in this case, he's not. He's just, his, everything he does to her is about giving her pleasure and taking her pain from her. And it has to be that way. Because he caused her so much pain. Of course. And, and the big thing about her, like, I mean, she actually says something like, now she was defeated and at the hands of a man who should have defended her. Mm-hmm. She, liter- she literally must beat him up in order to, like, gain that feeling of power back. Mm-hmm. A physical defeat at the hands of Declan Chase, like, must mean that she at some point is going to, like, turn that back on him as physical rage. Mm-hmm. Like it, it has to be that way. And he doesn't. He deserves every blow she delivers him, and he knows that, yeah. and he takes it. And I, and honestly, that's one of the scenes that I was like, yes, this is what you need to do right now. You need to literally let her beat the crap out of you. And Lothair knows it. What's Absolutely. amazing is that Lothair. So through this whole the, the lead up, and I had forgotten the end of this book. Um, oh, interesting. I had forgotten how it all how it all comes to pass that Declan becomes immortal. Um, And what's interesting is that basically Lothair behaves as a parent from the start Mm -hmm. here, right? Like he, he sort of, he, well, maybe not from the start, like he makes the deal with Declan and um, with Declan for, you know, endless blood so that he can dream the locate, the last known location of his ring. Right. And find out who has the ring. But also, um, he then gives him this, like, really paternal advice. Like, it's perverted, but it's, like, very per- paternal, the advice that he gives about um, how to win Regan back. And then he has this experience with Thad where he, like, protects Thad and, like, keeps Thad safe. And then, um, ultimately, he literally sires or, I mean, essentially, he is willing to give his blood for... To sire Chase as a vampire yeah. to keep him alive, yeah. and ulti- that's right. that isn't ultimately how Chase is kept alive, but the his willingness to play essentially dad to yeah this character is really interesting. I think it's really interesting that the only time we ever see vampires sired. I mean, obviously, we see all the Roth brothers sired, but it's a different thing because they've right. been sired in the past. But the only time we see people sired in the series are two 
Lothair sires two people. Oh, interesting. One is Chase and the well, other we'll get to. Yeah. Well, and again, I think like one of the things we see in this particular book is all these like opposites, right? So Webb, he thought was his father like figure and he turns out to be a betrayer. And Lothair then sort of like takes it, like steps in and takes that place. And he's also a betrayer, but it's, it's somehow different, right? Like, because ultimately Lothair's parenting, quote unquote, <laughs> big, is more, I know, I'm like, <laughs> whatever we're going to call that, is more honest. It's lore parenting. Oh my God. It's, it's episode lore two. parenting trips. Oh my God. It's more. If you want to win the girl, just let her beat you up. <laughs> yeah. Love there. So, I mean, I do, I think that's like really interesting the way like that idea of like a father, it's like a father figure that steered him wrong by lying to him mm-hmm. versus this father figure who it's like all tough love. Right. Yeah. And like really deeply honest. Like, yeah, the one thing that there is, is honest. He literally cannot lie. So there are two other things that I think are really interesting here. One is that in the text here, Lothair seems to be able to, if you drain a, if you drain a body um, completely, which is how Lothair gets his red eyes, um, you assume their power as well mm. as their memories. That goes away. That no longer, like, that's that's a sort of throwaway line here that we never see again. Um, and then I want to talk about vows to the lore. Can we talk about vows to the lore? I can you believe it was it's not until now. this book? Yep. So the vow to the lore exists now. It is, yep. uh, and it is canon as of now that if you vow something to the lore, you cannot ever take it back, and that will be a huge piece of at least. Lothair and all books following, but I assume next book too. I haven't I haven't reread uh Lothair is next. Oh shit, Lothair is next. Girl. Oh my god, it's happening. <laughs> I know. I know. You guys, I can't believe we're so far Jen, we're so far in. I know. I mean, we were just little babies a few months ago. I know. Here we are. You guys, Lothair's uh, almost here. It's almost over. It's like I know. Lothair and then just goes but Monroe Monroe is coming <laughs> I know Someday. well season two yeah um I th- I think the vows to the lore thing's really interesting because Declan Chase we know has lied to Caro explicitly right I'm gonna let you go and then doesn't and then in this book his vows take on new meaning both because he knows that he's part of the lore but because we see that he now takes making promises seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of those subtle signals that he has really changed. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Dorada is here. Dorada has come. We see Dorada arrive. We see Lothair really pissed off. Like, I think he's just ready. Like, he's ready to oh, take yeah. her on because he's just like, where's my ring? This place is terrible. Bring her. And she comes... It's like a wedding ring. This is the other thing that made me think of Odysseus, right? It's just a plain gold band. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have, like, it's not like the Lord of the Rings ring where it has something engraved on it or whatever. No. It's just a ring. It's just a, yeah. it's a MacGuffin. Which is why they, I think it's fascinating they, like, can't figure out what it is. They only know it's important because it's important to him. 
Mm-hmm. Not because it itself gives off any sort of well, or, or seeming to, right? We don't know what it is yet, do we? It's really interesting because I have, you know, I say a lot, of, I a lot, a lot, a lot. I say, well, that's a problem for future Sarah. And I have a feeling that Dorada's ring is a problem for future Cressley. Like, she knows mm-hmm. it's important. And when she gets to Lothair's book, it'll become very clear what it does. But yeah, right now, absolutely. it doesn't matter. It's just moving us through a couple of... Well, it's also really interesting to me, like, if we're talking about things that are kind of left on the table, that there are other torture islands, that there are other magisters, Mm. that just the destruction of this one island doesn't actually mean that the order is gone, although they kind of disappear after this book. Well, no, they come Um, back in McGreeve. Oh. Because Webb. Yeah, I guess I still associate all those books still with like this timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying for future, right? Way future. Yeah. So we're seeing a couple things. Let's talk about I want to I know that um we're we need to have Sarah on. So uh let's talk about um we are seeing the groundwork laid. So like we've said, we are seeing the groundwork laid for the entire third movement in this book. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this book is basically just like a giant prologue for Lothair. Um, and then we are seeing the uh, groundwork for McGreeve here. Yep. Um, because by the end of this book, Cressley's canonized the idea that um, many of the lore co- of lore kind have accepted a kind of deal with Chase um, mm-hmm. and the Order. But is it with the Order at the end? But McCreeve has not accepted this deal. Like he right. is not. Right interested in this we also mcgreeve is the first character who we actually see vivisected he comes out of the vivisection and he's been and we see mcgreeve attacked by succubi here which is going to be important when we get to him yeah we also see vicente and his succubi girlfriend though and it's like one of my favorite <laughs> moments is like that um Declan's like he doesn't have his shirt on and she looks real healthy and I was all <laughs> they just I did know it. What they were doing <laughs> oh I will say like I uh, one thing that really strikes me going back to the whole like kids see things is it's really explicit in the text that like once all the these creatures get free there's both killing and raping And it's pretty all over the place, right? Like, it's just happening. It's just this crazy, like, like literally anything goes. I'm glad there's not a lot of detail because my brain is really upset by it. It's interesting because incubi and succubi have to, the the way that they feed is through sex. And we start to learn a lot about the world building of succubi and incubi when we get to... McReeve, but we don't know any of that stuff. I mean, I really do think it's interesting because I said this once before, and now I'm just saying it again because I'm reminded of it, and I just had this thought within the last hour, but on the reread, this book becomes more tolerable. Yes. Because of things like how Cressley codes the rules of succubuses, or succubi, and or like how Cressley codes what Thad is. Yep. Suddenly, things start to feel different, and that's right because we know more, right? I know more than new readers do here. So what I guess I will say is, um, this is probably the most for me so far, at least. And I think I've reread all the other ones in the series except mm-hmm. for Dark Sky. 
But right now, I would say this is the most, this is the darkest of the books, and it is the most uncomfortable of the books for me. Yeah, and I think even though I liked it better, that will remain true. Yeah. Let's talk about um, vivisection. You want to do Lost Limbs? How, how even? I know. So I do think vivisection counts because they, like, take everything yeah. out and then put it back in. Yeah. Um, vivis- the, there's a graphic uh, description of the vivisection in this book that's not I'll great. I'll tell you what was even harder for me was her, her like, them, uh, yeah. I, like, can't even say it, right? Like It's when Brander she's basically explaining is, like, what they did yes. to her. But, like, there's a moment where, like, they staple, they wire your rib cage back together and staple you, and Brander's, like, These, those aren't going to come out by themselves. We need to take them out. And that scene of the lore kind undoing what humans have done. Yeah. It's brutal. It's, it's brutal all- to watch. Yeah. And it's there. And I'm kind of, but I get it. I get why we have to see it. We have to see it because we have to believe that Declan has been punished by viewing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, I think it's really important. The scene, I thought you were going to say the moment where Regan explains to Declan. Oh, God. What happened and the experience and then says, and all, I begged for you. I begged for you to stop it. And he wasn't, he was high in his room. He wasn't there. So um, there are really, like, there is, it is the, I usually, like, don't flinch at, right, at physical torture, but it is grim. And it what is. I would say is that from this moment on, I don't think we see it on the page quite like this ever again. I agree. I think that's probably true. Okay. But I do want to say two things. One, so yes, I think vivisection is real. I think we have to count Regan. Sure. I think we have to count uh, McReeve's vivisection as well mm-hmm. because it's an important... Um, and Brander, even though he doesn't appear again, right? Right. But I think McReeve's vivisection is essential to what is to come in, in his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also think, um, to, to add to the, I will bring you the heads of your enemies, um, Declan does to he- behead lots and lots of creatures Declan, for her. Well, yes, that, but also there's a <laughs> moment where he takes somebody by the neck and he squeezes until their eyes pop right out of their head and then their head just falls right off. <laughs> yes. Like he literally, I mean, it's like... <laughs> A whole nother so, level like, of beheading as gesture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I was like, oh, there it is. And there it is again. Yep. Nope. Another one. And then I think we have to count uh, the, the skin flaying of the neo... How do you yes. pronounce it? How does Robert pronounce, pronounce it? The Neptera. I don't know if I listen. Yeah. They call them Neos for short, but he's, right. his Which skin is, is flayed by the Neos. And then there's the plane crash. But I don't think anybody loses anything in the plane crash. No. I mean, if we counted Lothair cutting off Laderata's finger, I think we should also, because he, she has one eye, and then he oh, yeah. pokes out the other and throws her over. He kicks the other eye out, right? Because it's the Cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler, spoiler. Spoiler alert. Um, um, I think, yeah, Laderata's eye has to count. Sure. Yeah. And there it is. You'll disconnect him. I'll vivisect him. You'll open wide him. I'll subdivide him. Oh, dear, 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 dear. 
Um, also, I want to shout out Mike Rowe. I meant to shout this out earlier in the, in the podcast, but Nick has an obsession with Mike Rowe, the Dirty Jobs guy. Oh, yes. What's actually very funny is my mom is almost 80 years old, and she, too, has an obsession with Mike Rowe, the Dirty Jobs guy. So maybe this is just a thing that older women have. <laughs> Who knew? I didn't know. Um, but so, uh, Cool. And then, and what I love is in one of the books, not this one, but in one of them, he has, she has a, he has a restraining order out against her. <laughs> it's so amazing. Um, which is lovely. Um, and that is my whole list. Oh, and medieval French. Oh, so, okay. I want to talk just for two seconds about medieval French because I said, as I said to Jen, like, I love having a podcast so much because if we had like an actual radio show or anything that had, you know, professionalism related to it they would say no you may not send um you may not spend five minutes talking about medieval french but we're going to so as part of the story um when during one of his reincarnations regan and chase find each other and he is uh he is a french Night and he has she is defending a a castle and he comes to her and he says surrender your castle or I'll raise it to the ground, and um, Regan says um, I didn't that didn't set well with me so I voiced my opinion which was that you should go copulate with a pig and it sounded way cooler in medieval French and then she says <laughs> later. He said, you defend that rampart female. And I answered, to the death prick. Again, one way cooler in medieval French. And because we live in remarkable times, you guys. Remarkable times. I went to Twitter and I said, "Does anyone ha- is anyone an expert in medieval French and could do some translation for us, which we will pay you in, in podcast accolades. Here they are. Um, <laughs> and Heather pagan i don't know if this is her actual name but she's heather underscore underscore pagan on twitter and she is the editor of the anglo-norman dictionary of medieval french i just want you to know my my whole heart everybody i mean this is magnificent and she lives in wales um and she's amazing and she instantly offered to translate us uh translate this information. She also gave us a ton of information on Regency swearing and some links that we will put in show notes. Yes, she for was sure. remarkable. We also are going to link to the dictionary that she edits in case any of you, you know, would like to have a, an Anglo-Norman <laughs> dictionary. Um, and she has recorded the... Um, she's she's recorded the uh, the the language for us and we'll make sure that um we put it in um so you guys can hear this va foutre un porcel dame défendis-tu le terrain à la mort ripo thank you so much heather this is awesome but keep in mind regan's ability to insult people in modern english is also pretty great because one of my favorite moments in this book is when she tells chase if he takes her swords that she'll use them to slice off his nutsack and then it's a pause for a coin purse oh my god yes and also we haven't talked about this but like she regan fights with two swords that are attached to her back at all time mm-hmm. and they were gifts from aiden he taught her oh, no. that because she was so little she shouldn't use a broadsword she should be using two blades instead of one and it's yeah. really 
amazing. And at some point, Declan touches them and he can, like, feel that yeah. they're... Like, this jolt of energy. There's something but in But you them. know what? You know what's amazing, though, about Declan is he will actually let her fight and Aiden never wanted to. And it's just mm-hmm. another, like, hint that he's, like, a better match for her. Which is the perfect lead-in to us talking to our special guest, Sarah Hawley, from the Wicked Wallflowers. Sarah Hawley is like a unicorn, but in the most amazing way. <laughs> As though most unicorns are very ordinary. Uh, obviously. And here's why. Not because of her amazing awesome Wicked Wallflowers podcast, not because she's a friend of ours, not because of her just like utter gorgeousness and super smarts, <laughs> but also because if you look at the IADA spreadsheet of wonder, she's like the only person who has Declan Chase as her number one top superhero. Yeah. Yeah. And He's so we, we wanted you here, Sarah, to talk about yourself, maybe <laughs> introduce yourself, but also let's talk, we're talking about Declan and about sex. So hello. Great. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, I'm Sarah. I'm a magical unicorn because uh, I love Declan Chase. Uh, no, so Jenny and I have been doing the Wicked Wallflowers podcast for like a year and a half now. Uh, and that's obviously how I met you guys. And that's been fantastic. Uh, and then Immortals After Dark, I got into in college. I found uh, Dark Needs at Night's Edge at the public library. And I was like, yeah, sexy ghosts. I'm Our into it. Favorite. Our favorite. <laughs> it's so good. And so I just read it and I was obsessed uh, and immediately read all of them and am still going. Uh, she is just a genius just brilliant um and then in my normal life i don't think i have a normal life um i am also a writer so right now i'm have an agent i'm on submission and hopefully someday i will have a book out but i write fantasy but there's always um there's always sex in it because because i'm a dirty dirty girl so do you write romanticy or do you write it's fantasy, not, but it also has sex in it it's fantasy but it also has sex so i call it romantic fantasy because like there's always going to be um, an HEA, but it's probably going to be after four books and like a lot of death and murder. Um, <laughs> and like maybe Fine. maybe my heroine won't end up with the guy she first slept with. Maybe she'll end up with the Scandal. I know. One of my favorite moments in this book actually is there's a moment where um, Aiden is Aiden slash Declan is trying to shame um, Regan for like agreeing to sleep with him so readily. <laughs> and she is like basically like whoring myself for you. Maybe I'm whoring myself for the sake of whoring. Yes. Like sex is great mm-hmm. and I miss it with you. And I may have like fist bumped. Like it was a really great moment in the mm-hmm. book. So she's a, there's another one where they're, um, they've just had like a fist fight and he's like, you know, pinning her down and like thrusting and all that stuff. Uh, and he's like, oh, you would just let me fuck you on the ground like a common whore. And she's like, well, if you keep thrusting like that, I'm going to have to demand it. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> girl, you're so good. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So tell so okay, like yeah, so tell us about Declan though, because it's not typically a hero that people are drawn to. Also I think Sarah and I both have agreed we're team Declan now. But tell yes. us more about why okay. he's always Well, but wait to you. a second. Before we yeah. So Sarah, have you always been Team Declan, like from yeah. the very start? Yeah. It's so and did you read <laughs> And you read them in order. So, like, you got to Declan in order. It wasn't, like, the second he walked on page, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, the great torture man. You were like, like, ooh, vivisector. (laughs) I wasn't even looking forward to this book because, um, are we saying Regan or Regan? I never know how to say that. Regan. We're on team Regan. Regan. Okay. So, 
I was never really that into Regan. Uh, and I was like, oh, it's going to be Regan and like the torture guy. Uh, and then I picked up the book and I was just obsessed. And I, it's my favorite. It completely turned around Regan for me too. Like this book is as good as it is because she is so funny. Uh, and you yeah. need that in, in a book this dark. Um, but Declan Chase mm-hmm. is just such a very, very sad man. And I find his... <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I call him Torture Poor Bay. Baby. Declan Chase, Torture Bay. You know what Sarah said last time about Malcolm? She's like, you like him broke. You just like him broke different. And I feel like that's our new tagline. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's just like... His backstory is just unspeakably tragic. So he has had this punishing anxiety his entire life. Um, and it's you know, supernatural in origin because he is a reincarnation looking for his mate. But he has just felt awful his entire life. He turned to heroin to try and, like, feel better as a teenager. Um, He, you know, was estranged from his family, and he goes back to try and, like, steal money so he can get a fix, and he finds his brother dead and his parents being just devoured alive by these awful monsters who then, like, peel the skin off him for days. So you've got this 17-year-old heroin addict whose entire family is gone and then he gets picked up by the military and his father figure the guy who steps in to be his father figure is like look they're all like this all immortals are like this they're all monsters even if they look beautiful even if they seem reasonable they want to do to you what those things did to you and so he ends up brainwashed tortured again in like the military care because they want to like make him they said to, to take down these monsters you have to become one and so he's just been completely demolished by the only people that ever took him in and saw any worth in him. And so now he runs, you know, a torture facility, which is not great, um, where they're, you know, vivisecting people. It's not the people. best job. <laughs> it's not the best job. <laughs> but, like, he's horribly scarred and, like, he doesn't want anyone to see his skin. And he's just miserable all the time. And he's, like, still shooting up. He's just shooting up officially doctor-sanctioned yeah. drugs. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, this is to, and it's to hide his berserker tendencies. He doesn't realize he's one of these creatures, uh, and he's so resistant to it. And I find his arc just so heartbreaking because, like, I think everyone at some point in their life has felt like a monster, and yeah. he really is one. And like, I, I, I've felt like that too. And I don't, I don't torture people. You know, I haven't gone perhaps as far uh, into <laughs> monstrousness. <laughs> but the idea that you can just loathe yourself so deeply, and that you can think there's no way I can ever come back from what I am and who I am and there's no way anyone will ever care about this thing I am uh, and the idea that you're never too far gone you know he he ran a torture facility yeah. and he's responsible for pulling himself back out of that hole you know with Regan's help and like rediscovering how to live and how to love another person and how to accept being loved but like that is just so hard and I think it's like, everyone in IAD is a little monstrous, but it's more, like, fun for a lot of them. They're like, oh, like, Lothair is like, yeah. oh, yeah, I will garrote you with your own viscera. And, like, they're kind of used to this. And this is just this wretched, absolutely destroyed man who's convinced there's nothing of worth uh, and has nothing to live for except for, you know, vivisecting people. Um, and, and just seeing, like, that, it, it hit me, I think, deeper. And I think part of it is because he's human. Um, and the suffering just feels a lot more... Like, it sticks more because he didn't go into this knowing he was an immortal. Like, he's young. Right. He's a young immortal as it goes. He's, like, under 40. Um, and he's already gone through all of this. So I, I just think that's something really beautiful. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because we talked about how Caro is essentially, like, 40. And 
And one of the things that's really interesting is she's still this, like, wild one, but he's more, like, toxic masculinity personified. Yep. And I I think the part that you were, you were, like, the we're all monsters part, but the thing that's really appealing about reading about something monstrous that can be, like, redeemed is that, like, no one's lost forever, right? Yeah. And this actually, uh, I, was, I was thinking about that. That's basically a line from the new Star Wars. And, you know, I've been, like, diving into some Star Wars fan fiction. It's very much a Kylo Ren character type. This is a character I love. I also, like, the heroine of the book that I'm on submission with is monstrous. She's a survivor of child uh, abuse who has turned herself into something really hard and terrible just to live. And her arc is also about coming to terms with, like, how do you reconcile your humanity with the things you've done? Uh, and the Sure. It's become. like um, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, like, I'm I'm deeply invested in hoping Kylo Ren gets a redemption arc because, especially if you look into some of the stuff outside the movies, you're like, wow, this is a really miserable, tragic backstory. And the idea that you can have these toxic people who are doing awful things and are examples of toxic masculinity and they can still be redeemed. Like, I know we're not at a point in time where listening to the oppressor's narrative is super interesting, but it is... Right important i think to know that you can come back from that you can be redeemed and you don't have to be like a horrible misogynist forever or you don't have to be a racist forever or no matter what you've done there is some chance for you to to come back from that edge i don't know it's just a, it's a character trait i've always liked um but i've, I've always been like a, a villain fucker so <laughs> maybe that's part of it too <laughs> fine you got to own that, Sarah, and that's okay, too. <laughs> I think it's it's really interesting, I think, to think about, like, when... I mean, like, I wouldn't read a book about, like, a Nazi hero or mm-hmm. a Confederate hero. So one of the, th- the ways this works is to explore that kind of evilness outside of, like, actual reality. historical truth and reality makes it a much easier way to, like, engage in that, for sure. Yeah, and I wouldn't want the the Nazi narrative either. Um, even though that's kind of what this is, he's he's running an internment camp. Like, we're about as close to that as we can get. But paranormal lets us back away. Yeah, it is genocidal. What's happening here? Like, mm-hmm. he's, you know, I mean, he's performing medical experiments on yeah. an entire you know, class of people. of people. But because you know, Jen, you've said this a thousand times over the course of this uh, this podcast. But like, because immortality is on the table, the stakes can be. Mm-hmm way beyond anything that we would ever allow in a human uh, hero in a human world doing human atrocity. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's also something that makes it work here because the people being oppressed are, you know, the, the gorgeous, immortal, perfect scions of this world. Like, they are, they have power. And so it doesn't feel as bad to see like Lothair being burned to a crisp by Declan. Cause you're sure. like, Lothair has been like murdering people for millennia, you know? And right. it doesn't feel as much. It, it's more like the, the privileged people are the ones actually being incarcerated. So it's a lot easier to read. Uh, and I, I don't think I would enjoy Declan as much if he wasn't those were humans. If, if those were humans, I, I don't think I could forgive that. Um, but no, she always raises the stakes so high with the through the, roof. the paranormal stuff, and I think that's that's the only way you could engage with something like this and not have it be completely repellent. I yeah, I think you're really onto something because I think it's also about knowing that everyone who is harmed will be able to be magically regenerated from physical yeah. violence. Whereas if it was sexual violence, I would also be straight fucking out. 
yeah, that would also be a no. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways this could go where this would be an absolute deal breaker for me, but she is just such a master at at her craft and making people who have done awful things sympathetic that, like, you know, vivisection isn't great, but... (laughs) Yeah, she never oversteps the line either. That's what's amazing. She seems to always show us exactly where the line is, and then she'll Mm -hmm. tow it. But ultimately, she knows how far she can push us, Um, which is uh, amazing, particularly when you're talking about a character who has vivisected beloved character. I mean, beloved characters in the series. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and there's also a really interesting thing about, I think, addiction Mm -hmm. um, and self-medicating that that he's like a really interesting character to like sort of dive into some of that. but I also think the idea of, like, he is not aware that Regan is being vivisected. And I, and I, even though she is, he's unaware of it and didn't know about it. And I have to say, I think that would have also, like, if he'd known. Yeah. Sure. Right? So it's like, there, there's that line again, right? It happened to her, but he didn't know and he wasn't aware. And, and going up to the line, like, he did torture her. He gave her three drops of pain poison and then, like, noped out and realized he couldn't do it. And I, I didn't, that wasn't too far for me. Um, no. I think if it had gotten yeah. worse than that, I, I think it would have been. But she gets right up to that line. Um, this is interesting because I know we've been talking about morality chain periodically. This one mm-hmm. isn't, like, a morality chain romance because he, he realizes what he's done. And knows he's a monster. And it's not just because of Regan. He's not doing it. She's sort of his anchor back to sanity in a way. Wait, say, say more about that. Because I was thinking about this and I actually had the, this, uh, I had the same thought. that, But I came down on it is a morality chain romance. Oh. Because he, for a length of time during the book, seems unable to hurt her, but perfectly willing to hurt other people. Oh. Yeah, but I think I think at the end, though, the thing that makes me come down on this is not morality chain is that by the end of the book, I don't think he's doing it just for her. Like, yeah, it's like Lothair is the kind of guy who will be like, okay, well, I know you don't like me killing people, so I'm not going to kill people. Uh, Declan's the guy who's like, well, I feel a little better about myself, so I'm probably not going to vivisect anyone. Um, I think that's a literal line from Lothair. Like, oh, (laughs) fine. (laughs) He's like, oh, you know. Right. I'd say it's both and in that, like, morality chain, if you think about it, like, this is my chain back to humanity. I think he just moves further towards humanity. Like, she gets him there, right? Like, she, like, it's, like, literally, like, let me throw you a line and, like, reel you back in, Mm -hmm. which is also really interesting to talk about, like, making someone more human when this is about the world of immortals. Yeah. For listeners who maybe don't know what we're talking about when we say morality chain, um, the... Well, Sarah, why don't you explain what morality chain romance is? And then also uh, people have asked us to do an interstitial on morality chain. And I think we do have one on the list uh, coming. So, yeah, well, so morality chain is basically when a a hero or heroine only does the right thing because of their love interest. So you get like a sociopath who's like, well, you know, I have no problem, you know, destroying people's lives, but, you know, my soft-hearted girlfriend really doesn't like that, so, like, I do it for her. Uh, and it's basically just <laughs> <laughs> having the, the being able to, like, have awful people be, like, the sexy bad boys they are, um, while also maybe cutting down on the, the behaviors that we don't actually want to fantasize about in the future. <laughs> to me, I feel like I, every time I experience it, it's like I think of it being, like, it's like a space station, 
right? And the bad guy's out there in space, and there's like that one tether that connects them back to the space the space station, and that's yeah. like the the chain, right? Like if it wasn't for that one person linking them, they would just like drift off and do all their crazy bad shit. Yeah. But I all I often find that morality chain trope, like that trope, which I love, is. It's like there was no chain, right? And then this love interest comes along and all of a sudden it is. It's like they're this chasm away and someone's like throwing them a line and saying like, come back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like it's a very back. common trope right now in dark romance mm-hmm. um, because it is the sort of – in dark romance, especially contemporary dark romance, that's where we really see like heroes doing – I mean, are they even really – heroes – who are called heroes because literature requires that they're called heroes for this conversation, doing terrible, terrible things, mm-hmm. um, sometimes to the heroine, and then being brought yeah. brought low and returned to humanity with, by her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's tricky to do it really well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. And well, we'll talk about it more next week with or for the next book with Lothair. But um, it is it. I definitely went back and forth on Declan and yeah. and it potentially being here too. But it's interesting to hear you think not, Sarah. Well, I think so he, it it becomes self generated enough. Like she is the lifeline, but in the end, like she's not the only thing tethering him. You know, he's got yeah. he's got Brander. He's got uh, a lot of guilt. That's a good point. I think a lot of time the morality <laughs> chain heroes to me don't seem very guilty about what they've done yeah guilt Um, guilt is interesting yeah the one thing i did wish he had done is that i think regan sets up the declan chase restitution fund in his name and i wish that he had done that himself uh instead of like her being like and then let's do this Um, now you're gonna (laughs) now you're gonna get sad and his mom and grandma a mansion but like what a wifey (laughs) thing to do right where you're like oh i'll just fix this for you like like, Like, this goes back to this question of like (laughs) women doing the emotional work always in all situations i will say i don't know if anybody else thought this but when thad started calling him dc instead of declan chase (laughs) I thought it was this not. I know. So bro-y. So bro It is. But you know what else it was? I thought it was like this really subtle way of Thad saying like, you've got all of the characteristics of being a superhero. Mm. But now you just have to act differently. Oh, look at you, Jen. DC. I love their little bro road trip. What a a wonderful... And they're just like, and Thad's just like, does anyone want a beer? While like Lothair is being like, okay, this is how you capture her heart is by being more evil. Like, and he's totally right. And like, I, I love everything about that. I'm just like, yeah. Was it some line about like taking love advice from like a multi-millennia old source yes. of undiluted evil? Yes. And like, and it works. Uh, no, there's so much so charming perfect. about this book. Yeah. And I yeah. think because there is so much, so much on the back half, uh, where they break out of the order and then, you know, Declan has to go through withdrawals again. And then he has to like cry a whole bunch as like mm, Regan gets yeah. wires ripped out of her rib cage. And like, he really has to go through the emotional pain. And I think if the, if Torture Island had lasted a little longer in the, the compound, there wouldn't have been as much time to be like, oh, look, Declan Chase is like kind of trying. He's sad. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Declan Chase. I was like, I want that on a t-shirt. Like that's Chase is kind of trying. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. One of the things I was really interested in, though, is we do get 
like these four other incarnations. Like, right, we get Aiden mm-hmm. and the other dudes, right? Edward yep. and Gabriel or whoever. Um, and I, one of the things I thought was really interesting is in each of those incarnations, like Aiden takes over. Yeah. So why did you think that Aiden couldn't take over Declan? Like, why do you think Declan was able to, like, stay on top of that? Because he's had to recover from just the worst trauma imaginable. Like, he he broke so badly that it's, you can't really break him again, you know? He came back and he's, he's just, like, he's too strong from having experienced everything he's experienced. And, like, I personally am so bored by all the incarnations and I, like, super hate Aiden. Um, (laughs) I... (laughs) <laughs> I find him more reprehensible than Declan Chase um, because he was just, he was domineering. He was like kind of creepy when she was 12. Like, he's like, you know, my woman will stay here. Like, he wasn't great about consent. Like, Aiden just sucks. And they did like the perfect Viking. And I'm like, this guy sucks so hard. Uh, and then the other incarnations are boring. And then Declan Chase, uh, where she's like, this is the wretched version. This is the tortured version. This is all the pain and hate that this perfect guy had. And instead he sort of spawned into this new, more interesting thing where he isn't perfect. And I think because he's experienced victimhood, which um, Aiden hadn't, he's more able to empathize um, with her. Like he wants her to be his hunting partner. And he like, yeah, when, it's so sad when he's like, you're my friend. And she's like, Oh, oh my God. I know. Like, I am she's like, we're she's friends? only friend. Yeah. And like, oh. it's just so sad where he sees her as sort of this, this equal in a way that um, Aiden never did. And he's just this, I, I do think the, the victimhood um, changed him. Like Aiden never had to, to suffer, but Declan had to fight back from that. So, yeah, I think you're really right about that. I also, I want to read a little bit from the, the bit where Lothair is teaching is listening to them like coach him on how to get Regan. This is before Lothair is like, let me tell you how to get a Valkyrie. Oh. Um, but he's like, I knew of Aiden the Fierce. No mortal could kill that many of the Horde without my hearing about it. And I know that he was a bold, blonde Viking who was like a god among men. Women wanted him and men wanted to be him. He sighed. Reminded me of myself. <laughs> then he oh, jerked Sarah his chin. His book is so amazing. He's amazing. He jerked his chin at Declan and says, Chase here is a coal-haired, scarred, underhanded, emotionally deficient Irishman who incidentally is loathed universally by immortals <laughs> and mortals alike. First of all, like, Lothair, the truth teller, is pretty magnificent here. But also, like, that's that's the moment where you sort of realize, like, he has to change he has to sort of become something completely different in order to win Regan. And she, um, and, and I really think that in, in this case, she doesn't spend, she doesn't spend any time with the other guys trying to get them to change or evolve or be nuanced or anything. Like she just falls into bed with them. And I think uh, Aiden actually to me is, is the epitome of male privilege. You know, we're talking about Declan being toxic masculinity. Like, Aiden's like, well, of course I get a Valkyrie. I deserve her. She's mine by right. All of these right. things are mine. Her father, he's yes. so arrogant about Woden. Yes. Yeah. And he's just like, and so he's used to being getting whatever he wants. And he's like big and muscled and blonde and perfect. And like, of course I deserve a daughter of the gods. And like, you'll do yeah. what I say and just like, wait here. I'll come back from battle and like, fuck you sometimes. Like, he's not great. This is making me realize though that at the end, like at the very end, part of the, the, 
one of the scenes that I love the most in the book is when Regan goes Regan, for the mm-hmm. the rock and like attacks the rock and screams at Woden yeah. and is yeah. like you owe this to me because it's been she sort of tur- it turns itself on its head and mm-hmm. she's like you I deserve this from you yeah. because yeah. I've suffered look at how I have fought and I have suffered yeah one of the things I want to just like swing back to and I meant to talk about I I don't I really also think that every incarnation of Aiden is the incarnation of a certain kind of romance hero. And I remember very fucking vividly reading a love swept romance by Irish Johansson. Remember her? <laughs> Called White Satin. I just looked up. I think I bought a copy on Thrift Books because I love that shit. And she was like a 12 or 14 year old like figure skater. And the and in this story, she's practicing with this guy who's like 20, and he recognizes that there's this attraction between them, but it's oh creepy because she's so young. But it's all very controlling. He's very yeah. Aiden-like, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think then you get like Gabriel, like the pirate. Yeah, the, the lusty pirate. Yeah. Yes. And then you get just like the, the cinnamon roll Edward. And I yeah. think that like what we're also seeing is like, and not just that like heroes change, but that heroines change and what we need from like the men in our lives has changed. And I yeah. think that that's one thing this book is really doing is like, is like showing us like, Hey, remember this guy and then this guy and then this guy. And yeah. they and- all can be part of who romance is right now, but it's not who we need anymore. Now we need the torturers. <laughs> fine more torture <laughs> no it's it's funny though because regan just kind of for being such a tough um character does kind of just get swept along by the other incarnations this is the first one where it feels like it's really been a fair fight in a way and yeah. that's also what i really love about their dynamic is that it is it, it's a power struggle um and it's not just her being walked all over by like the handsome viking well, it's almost like Aiden was sort of prescient at the beginning of this when he was like, when you're grown up, mm-hmm, we're yeah. going to be mated. Yep. Because it's mm-hmm. almost like it's taken this long for Regan to become grown up enough yeah, to have to acknowledge yeah. the need for love and how complicated it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like the long half life of a, of an immortal adolescent is basically yeah. what her story I mean, well, is, right? Think of all the voicemail messages she left for Lucia during yeah. uh, oh, yeah. that book, where she was like, "I'm playing video games and you suck and I hate yeah. you, but I love you. But when are you coming back?" And like, "Oh my god, yeah. I miss you." Like she's like a yeah. toddler. Yeah, and she's been emotionally dependent on Lucia for so long, and then this is the first book where she's on her own and she kind of doesn't have that anymore so it's like she also gets everything stripped away from her um oh her, absolutely her and her comfort and her intoxibongs or whatever her intoxispells <laughs> and like she's also just having to start over again um and she's broken like all the way down just for how to yeah. get her can we also back? talk about sex in this book yes there isn't a whole lot of it but what there is is fucking hot <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> I mean, there this can't has, be a whole lot of it, right? I mean, so. yeah. this has one of my favorite sexy scenes in any romance ever, and it doesn't even end in sex or, like, anything. It's the bathtub scene. Um, Presley Cole must have an amazing bathtub in her house because she <laughs> is inspired. 
No, well, like, the, but so between the fist fight where they end up like grinding on the ground, I was like, oh. "Yep, oh, we're yeah. off to the races." I we love talked this. about that in our uh, in the other part the, of this episode. Woof, yeah, where, she, where he's like, "Okay, I don't want to hear about all these like sexy like incarnations of me you have had sex with. Like, I don't really want to hear about them." What would you tell someone about me? He's also assuming oh, that he's not God, going that to seems last. So he's like, "What will you tell the next one?" Like, obviously, once I'm dead. Uh, yeah, and she just starts talking about like it turns into dirty talk and she's in the tub just like moaning and being like, you would, blah, 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 you would do this. And he just like flips out, loses it, drags her out of the bathtub, puts her on the counter and then desperately wants to touch her, but like doesn't want her to see the scars on his hands. So he blindfolds her and then he just starts <laughs> like gently touching her. He like pokes the tip of her ear and he like, yeah. And it's just the smallest things. And I was like, this is the hottest thing I have ever read. It's just like her naked well, blindfolded while Declan Chase, like, gradually like gets more comfortable touching her it's true so, well, and it's then, also torturous right it's yeah. he's torturing yep. her yep. with i mean not intentionally but like it's it's the torture of like she knows it can't consummate like right. that, yeah. there's no way it's happening there then yeah well and the fact that then web walks in is so like it bursts that bubble like literally it's so in it feels more invasive than almost any other thing he does in the book. And he does yeah. a lot of shit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, it made me so sad. I was like, oh, God. And that's like the beginning of the long slog through everyone being sad all the time until you can get back to the sexy stuff. Until Thad opens the beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, True. I think it's time for beer. Another bathing scene, like that one's hot too, where it just ends up like a fist fight turns into 69ing. And I'm like, I'm. I love this. I love this dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've always been a sucker for like fight fucking. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Everyone loves that. Everyone loves that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what also is a really funny part of that is when um, Lothair, when she finds out that Declan, it's a really fascinating scene where she catches Lothair feeding from Declan. Yeah. And she notices that Lothair has an erection and she's super grossed out yes. by it. But also like, what if it had been Brander? That might have been hot, which is like this really funny moment. And then, you know, what she says to him, though, pretty quickly is he's going to be able to see what we did together. Mm. And then Lothair's like, you assholes, I've been watching you all along. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Lothair is the best. But I thought that was really interesting that that's what it was like. You're going to know about me and my sisters or whatever. But very quickly, it's like he's going to be able to see how we were together. Yeah. Which is sad. Yeah. It was interesting because this is a craft thing, but I actually really thought at some point that Lothair was going to dream the past. Like... Because I feel like Lothair has been is so critical to the plot of this book that I really did have a moment where I was like, oh, Lothair's going to dream, you know, Aiden or Gabriel or something and like be part of explaining. Because it is that to your point, Jen, over the last couple of weeks, like it is a cheat, right? And it would be sort of an extra cheat if someone else dreamed the memory and then like reported it back to you. You know what? I, I, I will say the one like sex thing that I really found a bit confounding in this book is at the beginning when Aiden first sleeps with her. Yeah. And it'd been seven months and he'd been holding off. It was not clear to me at all like what made it so urgent. I mean, I guess it was just like berserker rage or whatever, but yeah. what yeah, set it was the him battle, onto wasn't that it? path? 
Yeah, but he'd been battling, like, all the fucking time. Like, battle, battle. Like, I just didn't get... I guess he had been kept from her, right? Yeah, I He's think like, they they're going to try and keep prisoner. you from me or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't just a battle. It was like the vampires had got him behind enemy lines, and he didn't know if he was going to return to her. And he was like, why haven't I been having sex with her this whole time? Which is a, a valid question. I also wondered why they weren't having sex the whole time. Um, but... Yeah. I didn't like that sex scene because she kept saying no uh, and yeah. just kind of kept going. And, like, just because she eventually is like, all right, this oh, is yeah, happening, this is hot. Do it, doesn't, doesn't, isn't enough for me. So I just, ugh, I hate Aiden so much. Well, I do think that it's one of the reasons, though, that then in a very similar kind of scene at the end, it's clearer. Her consent is clearer. Yeah. Her, the idea that they're both in charge of it. So I guess I do feel like. We needed to see that scene to see, like, that morph and change kind of in the... Like, right, we need to see that, like, both on both sides. I wish there was more more sex in it, though. <laughs> sure. I was going to say, sure, of course. Um, <laughs> read the Game Maker series. Um, Sarah, here's my question before we wrap up. <laughs> Anything that you were like, I really wanted to bring up or talk about before we... Um, this was amazing, but I'm like, anything you were like, oh, I definitely wanted to talk about XYZ. Me? No. Um, I'm just glad we got to talk about uh, four monsters deserving love. Um, <laughs> no. And then maybe we could have spent more time on Regan. Like, Regan's just so great. Regan's the kind yeah. of heroine I love reading about in romances because it is absolutely the opposite of me, where I am like a, a strange, anxious creature who will, like, <laughs> use my words yeah. rather than my fists. And I've always wished I could be just a blunt ass kicker, and I'm not. Uh, and so I love reading about them. Uh, Melchine Brook has another good one in Demon Forged that I'm like, that's never going to be me. But like, damn, that would be awesome if it was. But just how funny she was. And like, this book has some of the funniest lines in the whole series. And it's just oh, for it's sure. the darkest one. Yes. And you're like, that's such a strange combination where I'm like, this is hysterical. And also our heroine's ribcage just got cracked open. So like, <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. It is. I think the saddest thing yeah. for me, there's a part where after the vivisection where she's dim, her yeah. light's gone. Yeah. And she's kind of like, it might not come back. But then it does through orgasm. So yes. fine. There you go. I, I was going to say healed through orgasm. They had to just fuck it out, as Kate <laughs> says. Yeah. Oh, and can we talk about um, Natalia and how great she is and how I want her to she's be the great. heroine of a book? <gasps> she's so good. <laughs> she's so good. <laughs> Do you think she's going to end up being for Thad? Maybe. Oh, that's so funny. She's just thirsting after Thad. He's so oh young. He's so young. It's But he's a thousand years uh, old, remember, Sarah? Yeah, yeah he's very I know, alert. I know. Well, we're spoiling that. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. Thad's <laughs> um, actually kind of uh, Lothair's morality chain, too. <laughs> yeah that's, yeah that's everyone's morality he's like hey dc hey law there and it's like he's the only other one that's like oh yeah let me tether these horrific people <laughs> to some idea of decency like let's all drink some brewskis together um i love that what a weird i kid. love that <laughs> he's actually best i think in this book like, I think, um, in the and in the next book, because uh, he's in Lothair, yeah. he's, he's a big piece of Lothair, yeah. but when he comes back in Sweet Ruin, he's not the same character in that book. So it's interesting to see what she's doing with him, because she's clearly evolving him in some way. Why don't we wrap up and... Sarah, thank you for joining us. This was amazing. Thank you for letting me talk about my love of Declan Chase. I was really nervous ahead of time because it's, I was like, okay, I'm going to go on a podcast and explain 
why the torture man is my favorite. But it feels, <laughs> it feels complicated. I've been trying to figure out how to articulate it. It's just, yeah, we do like we do like a broke a little different. <laughs> but no, I, we lo- we are Team Declan. Weirdly now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. This was amazing. We are so excited. You guys, Lothair is next. Here we come. It's so exciting. Um, You are listening to Faded Mates. If you haven't headed over to your favorite podcasting app and subscribed, we would love for you to do that. You won't want to miss Lothair, which will probably be a double episode. Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's got to be. And um, make sure that you give us a rating, hopefully a good one, um, and leave us a review, hopefully a good one. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Tell, you know, your favorite Valkyrie. And uh, uh, find us on Twitter at Faded Mates. Find us on Instagram at Faded Mates Pod. What else? Next week, we have a new interstitial. And uh, that's it. We'll see you next time. Va foutre un porcel. Dame, défendis-tu le terrain à la mort, ripo.